Damo, you big sweet tooth. Yes, MP, you chocoholic. So naughty but nice, we're a hit at the Wellness Summit and I want more. Well, how does 20 recipes in their free ebook Heavenly Healthy Desserts sound, MP? Jeepers, Damo, I'm loving that. Or you can hop on down to their brand new cafe, Selection Cafe in South Melbourne and receive 10% off your favourite healthy desserts. Woohoo! To do so, go to sonaughtybutnice.com forward slash couch and fill in your details to receive your free ebook and discount voucher. That's www.sonaughtybutnice.com forward slash couch. So naughty but nice, delicious nutrition. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Abnormal Psychologist, the show that shares everyday insights into getting the best out of your mind, body, and lifestyle. Now, please welcome your host, The Abnormal Psychologist herself, Carrie Thompson-Casey. Hello, and how are you going? Welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist with me, your host, Carrie Thompson-Casey, the show where we are giving you the how-to to to get the best out of you. And today, I'm really excited to be speaking to the absolutely gorgeous Dr. Rachel Windham, who is a GP and a naturopath, and she practices on the Gold Coast and from New Zealand. And Dr. Rachel also presents beautiful workshops on simple ways to wellness that work. So welcome, Dr. Rachel Windham. Good morning, Carrie. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Rachel Windham, how did you get to be a doctor? Tell us your story. Well, so where do we start? <laughs> it's um, an interesting way to go. You know, you talk to most integrative medicine practitioners, and for those listening, that means um, general practitioners who have an interest in nutritional or environmental medicine, maybe herbal medicine or other modalities. Um, often they'll be practicing medicine. They'll go through the standard, you know, biomedical science or undergraduate medicine, then postgrad, do their internship, residency, um, and it's a bit later down the track where they're looking for tools to help their patients. That they find some of these, you know, different once were alternate, now are more complementary modalities. But I started off the other way. I actually did my naturopathic degree first. So when we grew up, um, my aunt was a naturopath in the 70s. So, you know, back then that was really rare. And we lived a way where we had chickens, we grew veggies. And if we were unwell, we'd take herbal tonics and we use food, you know, as our medicine. And we believed in, you know, health is outside and exercise and movement and good rest and the simple principles that I believe are naturopathic medicine. Now, when I finished school, um, I went on and studied naturopathy. And when I finished, I started a clinic. Actually, I worked in a few different areas first. I worked in health retreats. Um, Even now, I believe that's the most incredible environment for having the ability to create change. So just separating yourself from all your habits and creating brand new beautiful habits and experiencing good food and exercise. So I spent some time working in health retreats. Then I also worked doing body work and in retail. So I just had that time where I really integrated my education and felt that I had enough knowledge to go into clinic. So when I opened my clinic, I actually chose to do so in a quite a big um, general practice. So this was a, a big clinic, you know, eight, 10 GPs. There was clinical psychologists, there were Um, nutritionists, um, lots of different modalities. And I thought, well, this is perfect. There's not a a naturopath in here. Um, 
so set up clinic and that was quite successful. I had, you know, regular patients, but I found that there was such a huge resistance, um, not just from a lot of um, the population or patients, but also from other practitioners. And I guess I'd come from an environment which was very um, conducive to natural health. So I'd always been in the industry, in health food shops or in, um, you know, university and I realized that people didn't believe that this was a genuine evidence-based way to health. They thought that, you know, this was alternate and fringe and there was a lot of distrust and even a lot of resistance and anger. So being very, um, I guess, what word would you use, I was always an explorer and an investigator and I needed to know everything about health and well-being. Um, but I was also very determined. I really wanted to understand why they had such resistance and, you know, what they learned in medical school that created this distrust of natural therapies and alternative medicine. So by this time, my first daughter was just young. She was about 12, 18 months old. And I decided that if you can't beat them, you join them. So I went back to medical school. Um, huge undertaking. I don't know now if, you know, it was insane. or. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I'm so grateful for the opportunity that I now have such a broad education in both fields. So I did another four years so post-grad medicine. I did an internship here. The residency, worked through the hospitals, um, you know, emergency medicine, palliative care, cardiology, um, and then went into my general practice training. So I came around full circle and went back into practice. And I realized that there were some areas of naturopathy and natural medicine that I probably dropped away. Um, more that I think I refined what I knew would work and how much effort patients could put in and what was absolutely safe and then I brought a lot of what I learned in medicine in as well I accepted a lot that was mainstream that naturopathy would question um, and I find that I'm really comfortable in that place where I can be an advocate for patients that I can help them make the right decision that um, I'm also very safe when it comes to identifying cancers early identifying where vaccinations are really necessary um, and just, yeah, having the best of both, I think, now. So that's a very long answer to your story, how I got to here. <laughs> so now that you've seen both sides, what do you think people are most afraid of when it comes to um, so-called alternative health in terms of naturopathy and other areas that aren't the traditional medicine route? Yeah, great question. I think there's probably two groups of people who are very wary or afraid and that's other practitioners um, and then the public. So I think people who really don't seek advice from alternate practitioners feel that they um, either have a, another motive, that they're either selling them therapies or they're interested in making money off people who are um, maybe in a position where they're very vulnerable. Mm. And I think, you know, a lot of practitioners feel that way as well. They feel that if they are going to choose something and recommend that to their patient, they need to know absolutely that it works. If people are going to spend money, um, they need to be sure that there's going to be an outcome. I think practitioners are much more afraid of danger, whereas complementary medicine, alternative medicine, has very, very few dangers except 
the danger I see where people aren't diagnosed early enough. So if someone sees an alternate practitioner and they go along treating something that could actually be quite sinister um, and they don't get checked for that early enough, that's probably the, the main danger. But the ideal nowadays is to have a great GP who is open and communicative, who can talk to your naturopath um, or nutritionist, and you, you have the best of both. Um, a GP doesn't have an hour to spend with you to go through all of your diet and your habits and how to create change and motivate you and use some of these other modalities to support you along the way. But um, your naturopath also isn't doing ECGs and, you know, checking the very basics to make sure there's nothing critical that could go wrong in the very near future. Yeah, so it's – and I think it's interesting as a psychologist where some of that um, – you know, in terms of what people are afraid of, I think some of the mystery around therapy is that there aren't actually any um, pills or potions or, you know, scans. It's really about what's happening for the person. And I think some people who are sceptics around does therapy really work um, sort of fail to recognise how powerful um, our our thoughts and behaviours are in terms of driving even the most minute things that we do every single day that can be keeping us stuck. And I think that's, um, I think we were talking before in the call before we started recording was about how, you know, habits and behaviours that people get stuck in that can keep them overweight or prevent them from exercising or being blind to um, the types of food that they're putting in their body that are becoming more harmful over time. So I think it's you know, really interesting for every industry that the people who are afraid of what we do or don't believe, you know, I've had people walk in um, to sessions and say, you know, I don't really believe in therapy. And mm. it's sort of like, a, it's, a, it's an interesting statement. Like, what what is it that they think they're not believing? Um, but, you know, what made them decide to have jam on toast, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I know, it's, it's interesting. Very, I mean, yeah. I haven't, well, maybe more now, but I really don't have people say, I don't believe in my doctor. Like, it, you have a professional, you don't believe in your lawyer. You, you choose something and you try it um, and you think about the risk before you do. But if there's really no risk in giving something a go, you've only got the opportunity to see good outcome. So, yeah. Believe's a funny word. It is. And I think, yeah, I think in all professions, obviously, we're trying to minimise risk. Um, but it's often, again, what we were talking about before is it's often that participation from patients or clients outside of that assessment or that, that therapy space um, where most of the magic happens. It's not so much about the what we do in that moment, in that that time obviously we can guide and make suggestions but it's about what the person's willing to do outside of when they're with us so so what do you find um in your practice now so you're practicing as a gp and as a naturopath what do you um you know probably really a similar question actually what are people most afraid of in terms of their health what are they you know, is are pe- most people worried about that it is quite sinister or, you know, they found something and does that mean they're quite, you know, I think people are leaping to quite um, catastrophic outcomes. You know, they feel a bit unwell, what's wrong with me? Um, they become quite afraid. Um, mm-hmm. what, what, what do you see? What are people most afraid of when they present to you? I think um, there's such a huge amount of information out there now. You know, Dr. Google has been yes. a blessing and a curse, I <laughs> yes. think, for doctors and for patients. So, 
you know, any symptom that someone gets. And, you know, most of my patients, I see children and, and young teens as well as, you know, adults and older women. And mostly, you know, it's, it's probably a similar age to myself once you hit 40 and you start to see things crack around the edges and you get concerned. You have friends that, you know, become unwell and even lose their life early. Um, you have parents who are becoming unwell and you just start to think, you know, at what point is this something that I need to be really aware of? You're invincible when you're young and, you know, you start to have to have pap smears and mammograms and checking for osteoporosis and you get one little symptom and you go Googling that. And unfortunately, the people that are, are writing there on the internet are not usually the general mean population they're often an extreme group they've either had terrible um, experiences or you know the people that want to write about their experience is not always necessarily what everyone else is going to go through um, so any medication people are very very wary of and I understand that but there's a, a funny belief like we were just talking about what people believe um, in that anything they can get from the health food shop is perfectly safe and okay, but if you walk into the pharmacy and buy it, it's a drug. Mm. And I'm often educating people on, you know, where these substances came from, what they do, you know, the amount that's safe and unsafe. So I think that's a really misunderstood area. If, you know, food can even be dangerous in huge quantities in different proportions. Um, so I think we're afraid of, of getting old, of obviously developing cancer. Um, heart disease is something that I guess as women we're probably not as afraid of, but the statistics show that that's something that we should be, you know, have foremost in our minds, you know, of being able to ch change our habits and make choices that can lead to long-term, you know, longevity without having cardiovascular events. So that means stroke, heart attack, you know, high blood pressure, clots. So these things are happening to women um, and one of the leading causes of our death. So, yeah, I think we're, we're just afraid of, of missing things, of having conditions and being given that scary news that suddenly your life's going to be cut short before you're ready. Um, and that they also aren't sure about what their general doctor is telling them. There's a lot of doctor distrust too. And there's a wellness industry out there where people are able to speak clear, you know, freely and make claims. Some are unsubstantiated, but I think it confuses people and they really just want to be given the simple information that is um, applicable to them that they can do something about or that can alleviate their worries and their stresses um, and I think the most common things I'm seeing really are we just can't sleep that we're overstressed that we're really emotionally disconnected and that's a big part of health you can't separate that from you know your physiology um, what else weight obviously we're always gaining a few few extra kilos every year yes. um, so that's a really big issue so I think they're probably the main concerns. So what would you just so sticking with that um, sort of a preventative vibe around mm -hmm. women's health and cardiovascular health and general well-being what do you like to see women doing for their health? Okay that's a huge question. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we can start from the very beginning. <laughs> um, look, I mean, starting with our ideal weight, and that sounds just 
such a simple statement to say and a lot of people battle with their weight, you know, maybe their whole lives. But your ideal weight for your frame and your size, you know, be sensible. Have a look at your mother and your grandmother and your family and you're not going to be a bikini model if, you know, you've got a decent structured size family. You have a genetic set point and, you know, most people know that there's a place in their life unless they've had some health issues since they were children where they were probably their ideal weight. Um, and I'm very much now for um, promoting strength training. So having a look at your body fat percentage compared to your skeletal muscle mass percentage. And we're so lucky now with all the tools we have. Most gyms have these equipment like bod pods. Um, you can pay $20 and go and get your full body assessment. So I think, look, I try and take people on a journey and in workshops or in teaching and really, we have GPSs now where we can put in a destination and say, I would like to be my ideal weight, but no one knows where they're starting from. They're randomly just thinking, well, I'm not feeling well. I don't know how well I sleep. I really don't look at what I eat every day. I have no idea what my body's made up of. Um, so I think it's a really powerful thing to stop and just take check, to write down what you eat every day to do a body composition check and just see that if you are completely made up of, of fat and not muscle mass, then that's something you have to do. And if it comes down to just lifting some heavy books 10 times before you hop into bed every night, I mean, so be it. If that's all you can manage to do. But if you create that one change, I guarantee that it will make such a massive change and impact on your physiology that everything just snowballs positively from there. So I think um, we need to sleep. You have to get on top of that. 80% of Australians with sleep apnea are undiagnosed, so we are missing that one. Um, and if you have sleep apnea, then you're driving weight, you're driving cardiovascular problems, and obviously you're not sleeping well. Um, so we've touched on diet, strength training, sleep, and emotional health. So being able to implement a meditation practice or you know, a communication practice and that comes down to, you know, seeing someone like yourself and a good psychologist who can help you with whichever therapy. Like we said, CBT is fabulous but there's lots of, you know, different really great therapies as well. Um, so, you know, most GPs would say get your blood pressure right, get your cholesterol right, um, you know, get your weight under control, of course, and exercise. And those things are important but how do you do those? If you're feeling flat or you're not connected or you're rushed or you have too few margins in your life um, and you're not able to sleep and you really don't know what your body's made of or, you know, how to move forward from there. So I sort of take that more in a practical lifestyle approach. Try to be a little bit of a coach, I think. Your own coach, you mean? Like, so it sounds like what you're saying is that that like self knowledge, like really committing to, rather than being afraid of what might happen, is taking control and building a picture of where you're at right now, and talking with people, whether they're health coaches or GPs, people that can give you a really good understanding of how to get where you need to go. So whether that's as you said, whether it's talking to someone about your weight or whether it's talking to someone about your blood pressure or going to see a clinical psychologist about um, calming down their mind in order to help their body do what it needs to do. Is that what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think, it, you know, having a team, you can't have one practitioner really help you to gain, you know, your optimum health. You need a team. You need 
somebody who can check your bloods and do your blood pressure and do the measures and weights and give you a starting point of here you are, be an investigator and have a really good look at how your body is. And then, yeah, what are the blocks? You know, you know you need to exercise, why aren't you? Then maybe CBT and psychology can help you, you know, get around those things and blocks in your mind that aren't allowing you to be the best that you can. And then a coach. I mean, a, a wellness coaches are awesome. Like, they do all the hard work. I sit there and say, you need to do X, Y, Z, but I'm not there shopping with them, going to the grocery store, getting them up in the morning, um, you know, Personal trainers and coaches have that role and that's amazing. So, yeah, you need a team but you need to be really real and really want to look at where your body is right now. I mean, head in the sand approach won't get you anywhere, I think. No, just starting from where you are and and building that knowledge about yourself so that you know what's the, the next easiest step to take and as long as you're moving in that direction towards improving your overall um, psychological and physical health then that's really something absolutely yeah and people get overwhelmed so if you can pick one small thing and implement that um, and it's really really powerful you don't have to do you know the Monday morning dieter who is going to have <laughs> 500 calories and they're going to go to the gym for two hours and you you know you think you have to do such an overwhelming amount that you're going to have no joy that everything will taste terrible, that you'll be really miserable sitting there with no friends and you can't go out and have a glass of wine. But it's not true. If you can have, you know, really simple habits just ingrained in your daily life which take care of the majority of these positive health effects, um, then, yeah, you can have a really joyful time doing it. So what have you learned about people through your practice? Well... That's a good question too. And I think, you know, I had a really big change around the year before last. I probably didn't mention sort of part of that story. So I was working in general practice. I was also doing a part-time role as a cardiology registrar in the new Gold Coast Hospital. So big new hospital, huge new team, um, amazing environment, but very, very um, full-on stressful job. Um, I had my closest girlfriend fight breast cancer for three years. So at the same time, she was going through, you know, some very serious treatment at the end of metastatic disease. Um, I turned 40 and I also had not been paying very close attention to my own health. I'd always been an exerciser and I'd always eaten well um, and I knew what to do, but just, you know, three kids in life and a business and working shift work, and trying to, I guess, be in control of our life rather than letting things flow and just acknowledging that everything will be okay. I think we get this whole juggling balls in the air and we've got to keep everything, you know, a certain way or it's all going to fall apart. And so I experienced a really severe um, panic attack situation working there. I was carrying code blue pager, so any major emergency that went on in the hospital was my responsibility. I was admitting patients and also in that environment, you have a lot of patients who are not taking responsibility for their own health. So, you know, they're smoking and eating terribly and they're overweight and they're still coming in and expecting top-level care in our beautiful health system that, you know, provides that at no cost um, with little thanks. And it got to a point where I wasn't caring. I wasn't caring for myself and I wasn't caring for my patients and I felt quite disconnected and it showed like physically you get little Burned messages yeah. yeah absolutely and you get 
a feeling that things are wrong, but it, it gets to a point where if you don't listen to those, you get a serious uh, message. And this came to me in panic and I was very, you know, unwell. So I left. I took 12 months off from clinic, from the hospital, and I thought I'm just going to have this beautiful experience where I can just care for myself and my family, eat well, meditate, go to yoga, Oh, it's you know amazing. It's going to be great. And I was really surprised that it wasn't very pleasant at all. I was oh. really disconnected. <laughs> <laughs> and my emotional health was everywhere. I was really anxious. Um, you know, I, I had really poor habits and self-thought, self-talk. I felt like a failure because I'd had to walk out of that situation. But, um, you know, it, it took time. It took a good four seasons and a whole year of just regenerating all these simple things that I knew, um, but letting go of some of that ego and how things have to be and control and just letting life sort of show you how it needs to be. And um, it was really incredible. And I think your question in what you learned about people, um, you know, I've seen incredible strength in people in palliative care who are, you know, facing the last months or weeks of their life. And that is one of the most genuine, you know, times that you can have with someone. And some of my most treasured memories is being a carer or a doctor. Um, you also see some of the worst in people when they are really suffering and in pain emotionally where they're addicted or they're um you know their behaviors so terrible especially through emergency departments and late at night and <laughs> so yeah but you start to see that everyone has that basic level of need like we all need to feel secure and feel loved and we all have our own you know ways of trying to get through this difficult world so Coming back from that place was really empowering for me. I just felt that every person I had a privilege of being there to help, um, you know, and they might not be ready to do anything or they might be just seeking and waiting, but there'll be a day when they make a change and watching people do that is just the most rewarding thing. So I think we're all really resilient and incredibly powerful and given that bit of care and love and support, it's just awesome what humans can do. It's wonderful. Yeah. I, I agree, perhaps not in such a vulnerable place as palliative care, but certainly mm. just what absolutely inspires me day in, day out in my practice or with coaching clients or even at workshops um, is even in such a brief period of time or a long period of time, seeing that human potential, that potential for, you know, love themselves or loving others or just change, you know, changing um, out of those dark, low, lonely places to be more open and able to be part of, um, you know, the living, breathing world. You know, mm -hmm. it, it is amazing to be in a very privileged position to be able to see people really reach their potential. And so, so you shared there that, that part of that story um, where you became quite burned out, not just with clients and work, but with yourself. Um, so I'm guessing there was a few lessons there, things you learned about yourself through those experiences. Yeah, I think if you're not learning, you're really not listening and watching all the signs around you because every day is such an you know, opportunity to learn. And I think I've always been someone who's read and sought knowledge um, and everything was probably in my head. So I'd read philosophy and spiritual learnings and 
um, as well as all the anatomy, physiology and nutrition and everything I could possibly find. But I had really, we laugh because I was cut off at the neck. I think everything was in my head and nothing yes. was in my heart. And, mm. you know, sometimes hospital work and probably you would understand too, clinical work, when you're seeing people in pain and suffering, you have to become really thick-skinned and resilient and you've got to be able to function really well quickly in your mind and make the right choices for people in an emergency situation. Um, and you lose touch with some of that emotion. So I think my lesson was to start to feel again and it's okay, it doesn't actually hurt you. So negative emotions are not really harmful if you sit with them and experience them and be vulnerable. It actually helps people. You know, they connect with you more and they're more able to share and it's, it's not an easy thing to do when you've learned the other way. So that was probably my biggest lesson. Yeah, I think I, I agree. And sometimes in a session, I will have to take a breath and say, this is a beautiful story, an awful story, but it's not my story. I need to take a breath and be here and be able to hear their story and work with them. But this is not my story. It, and I think sometimes um, to protect our, um, our, our body and heart from some of the stories that that's certainly that, well. That's certainly a strategy that I've used at times when I'm hearing a very powerful story, um, and, and whether it's becoming coming from a child or an adult, or whether it's about invisibility or, you mm. know, um, or even serious trauma or assault, it, mm. it doesn't it doesn't matter what the story. It's how it's speaking to me on that particular day. That sometimes I do need to take a breath and and talk myself um, into that space where I'm not taking that into my own mind and body personally that, that they're coming to see me as Carrie the clinical psychologist and sometimes I do need to take that breath mm. and, and come back to that place of hearing the story through those ears and eyes and not feeling that story as as a fellow human but of course th that might sound like I'm not being compassionate but actually that's the best way I can maintain my empathy is to protect myself in those ways if that makes any yeah. sense. No, yeah. it does, absolutely. You do. You have to Otherwise do the we job burn and, out. Yeah. Yeah. But then there has to be self care practices absolutely. at home. So, you know, you come from ICU and you're watching a traumatic and terrible situation and then, you know, you'd have to walk back into a home environment where the big drama of the day is ballet shoes that are missing. And <laughs> yes. it's just really difficult to keep a perspective and to keep a loving heart and and not bring one into the other. But yeah, I think just being present and mindful and, and that takes a lot of time and years and, I mean, I think I'm only just starting to learn any of those techniques but it's a beautiful way to live rather than to be head in the sand and hurting. That's right. So mm. what would be three um, quick tips that you would have for us for keeping um, or that you might do that keep mm. people grounded or focused or balanced? Okay. <laughs> There's so many. How do I choose three? Uh, look, there's a, a technique that it, it's probably not one of my usual go-to top three, but in the last few weeks I've been using more and more myself and with, with um, patients is um, I call it tipping your head out onto paper. So I think there's a few great teachers that use a white paper technique. So you, you just get a plain blank sheet of white paper and you dump every thought you have for the day because I think one of the most dangerous things is this self-talk and this constant 
monkey mind chatter that goes on Absolutely. in the back of our mind that's like you've forgotten this you have to do that what about oh and you know there's an argument going on with a family member or you're worried about someone's birthday and it it's just unlimited so to put everything down and to write every detail of all the things that are going on in your life and what needs to be done and what is on your mind and you're thinking of and it just seems to take it all out of the monkey mind yeah okay and you can cross things off or you can highlight things that you think are important and just have one or two simple tasks that you have to do I think you know um, Henry David Thoreau and Walden is one of my absolute favorite books of just getting out of society and living such a simple basic life um, and he talks about margins and having just one or two thoughts alone um, so that's one beautiful thing moving just moving your body in any way and it only needs to be gentle it can be just five simple stretches or poses at night just before you hop into bed um, or just a walk around the block but I think we're just so sedentary that our bodies aren't designed for that um, and eating protein for breakfast. Yes. That's absolutely on my list and I'm ranting and nagging <laughs> <laughs> about that at the moment. Um, I'm on one of the experts on the panel of Sarah Wilson's I Quit Sugar program. So it's beautiful to watch people go through that eight-week program and completely eradicate sugar from their life. Um, and the results are just phenomenal. But we just, as a society, we don't, know how to eat breakfast so we eat so much sugar so if we can just switch around our breakfast then we're 80% of the way there with our diet it doesn't need to be extreme you don't have to be vegan or paleo or you know you don't have to do a complete program like I quit sugar but just to be aware that you can actually change your whole physiology um, just by changing your breakfast great so how can people find your workshops or how can they find you? Website's probably best. So it's just www.drrach.com.au. Oh, that's so that's a short and sweet one, isn't yeah, it? D-R-R-A-C-H. It's easy. <laughs> My surname can get difficult to spell. Um, thank yeah, you. So yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for being on the show. I've really enjoyed and what you said, and there's some a few golden tips, I think, in there for people um, who are trying to make sure that they prevent any um, major things happening, if they can. Um, yeah. And I've loved having you, the TAP listener, with us. And don't forget, there's um, a round of workshops that I'll be doing on resilience for the anxious mind and body, as well as creating change for the change agent. That's a workshop to help health professionals create change in their clients. So please spread the word and tell your friends to listen to and subscribe to TAP in iTunes. And don't forget to give the show a five-star rating if you liked it. For more information about events and programs, please visit CarrieThompsonCasey.com. That's Thompson without a P. Thank you for joining me and see you on the next episode of The Abnormal Psychologist where we share real people's stories and give you real ideas so that you can realise your potential. Take care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.